0: you got your seatbelt fastened, right? Because I don't want any trouble back there. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, Behind the Wheel. My name is Glenn Washington, and I love driving. It's what's great about this country. You can screw up, mess up lives, children, houses, jobs, have your girl throw all your stuff in the lawn, and don't come back. And at the end of the day, You can get in the car, half a tank of gas, get on to the next town. where if you're lucky, they don't even know you. You can start over. They don't know you. Reinvent yourself. You, loser man, can become respectable again just by traveling a few hundred miles. This, my friends, is freedom. And this power, this luxury is one too many of us just take for granted. Well, not our next guest. Our next guest, He knows that with a set of car keys, he can be absolutely anybody he wants.
1: I lived in Turkey for a year in 2008, and I became good friends with a guy who we'll call Mehmet. He had actually gone to college in the US at Ball State in Indiana, so he knew America. He knew the lay of the land. At one point, after I had returned, he calls me up and he's like, hey man, coming to the U.S. for like two weeks, a friend of mine's getting married, uh, I'd like to hang out with you. So I was like, yeah, sure, Like, let's let's go on a road trip. It'll be really fun, we'll, we'll start in Philadelphia where I'm from, we'll drive across the country, we'll see America. And he was like, it's great, it's awesome, let's do it. Flies into Philadelphia, borrowed my parents' old Volvo, and we uh, hopped in the car and started driving. A little detail about Mehmet is that uh, he really likes to create alternative personalities. So usually when we go out, he comes up with some identity that he is for that night. Everything from a Wall Street lawyer to an Italian fisherman to a bus driver from Muncie, Indiana. When we ended up in Muncie, Indiana, where he went to college, he decided that he was going to be Turkish royalty. We go to like his favorite local bar that he had gone to when he was in college, and we're having a few drinks, and... Uh, He happens upon a few young women. He goes up to them and starts chatting. And he comes over to me, he's like, if you talk, talk in an accent. And I was like, okay, I guess I can do that. And uh, so we're talking to these girls, I'm saying nothing because I'm afraid that my accent is gonna come off like Russian or something weird. I I think I talk like this a little bit, maybe like, you know, something, uh, I don't know, half French, half Russian, half Turkish but uh, these girls were eating it all up. They were like, oh, where's Turkey? We were just telling them all this crazy stuff about Turkey that wasn't true. And then at one point they were like, well, what are you still doing in America? And he was like, well, I just want to live a normal life here. I I I just want to be normal. And they were like, why? And he was like, well, like, I'll tell you this girls, because you seem like really nice people, but like, don't go around telling people this. Little detail about me is that my dad is the king of Turkey.
2: And they were like, oh my God,
1: I've never met royalty before. That's so great. What's it like to grow up in a palace? Do you have a driver? Do you have a crown? Is there a throne? And he was like, yeah, I have a crown. And in Turkey, you have to wear a cape when you go to state functions. So I had this cool cape. And then he goes, and this guy here, he's my personal security. So don't mess with him. He doesn't speak a whole lot of English. And I was like, no, I don't speak very much English. It is good to be in America. This is fun. And I never really prepared to be a Turkish Secret Service agent or an Italian fisherman or a lawyer but uh, I fell into the role really quickly. I started to like stand up straighter and I would like look around to see if there was any security threats or anything. And, and at one point, one of the girls is like, we have to go meet our friends at this other bar, but like, wait here guys. So they leave the bar and we were like, I was like, man, we should be out of here now. I don't like this. And he's like, no, 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 no. Let's play this out a little longer. So they come back with like three other girls. Their new friend comes into the bar and she walks right up to us and she's like, I don't believe you. I'm pretty sure there isn't a king of Turkey he just lit into her. How dare you accuse me of making that up? What do you know, you silly American? I grew up in a palace, Domobacci Palace. That's where I grew up. He pulls out his wallet, and he had a bunch of old Turkish money. So in in 2005 in Turkey, they lopped six zeros off the currency. So, you know, a bill went from, like, 50,000 lira to 50 lira. And so he pulls out a 50,000 lira note, and he hands it to her, and he's like, here, go buy the bar. And she's like, what's the exchange rate? And he was like, basically one-to-one, that's 50,000 U.S. Like, I carry that around as emergency money, you know, in case I have to flee the country. And she's looking at the bill, and there's a picture of Ataturk on the bill. Ataturk is the founder of the Turkish Republic in the 20s, and he's been dead since, I believe, 1938. And she's like, who's this old guy on the bill? And he goes that is my father, thanks for insulting my father. And she's like, what's his name? And he's like, Kamal Ataturk. And she's like, what's your name? And he was like, Mehmet Ataturk. "Ah, I don't believe you. And she pulls out her iPhone. I freeze. Wikipedia, no! She looks up Turkey, the Republic of Turkey on the phone and doesn't look at any of the dates or anything. She just sees Kamal Ataturk on the, the thing and is like, oh my God, and closes her phone. He really is the Prince of Turkey. Oh, my God. And we go back to these girls' apartment. So we're, we're hanging out at their house, and one of them goes on Facebook, hanging out with the Prince of Turkey. Night is awesome. Winner. At this point, they're over the fact that he's royalty, and we're just talking about normal stuff, and he's actually in the other room making out with one of the other girls. And one of the girl's Facebook friends responds to her status update. There is no Prince of Turkey. Turkey is a parliamentary democracy, and it has been since the 20s. She's like, wait a minute. And she goes on Wikipedia, actually reads it this time, and is like, oh my god. And she screams at the top of her lungs. Kamal Ataturk died in 1938. Storms into the other room and and bursts into the room where my friend's making out with this girl. Next thing I know, we're being hustled out of this girl's apartment. And I think they still think I don't speak English because they were like, you have to go. You're not welcome here anymore. And we ran to my car. We're driving out of Indiana um, into Illinois. And at one point, I just turned to Mehmet, and I'm like, I have, a, I have to know, why do you do this all the time? And he's like, I really don't know. It just, I, I think it's fun.
0: That piece was told by the evil and diabolical Lewin Tankle. and was produced by the not evil at all Stephanie Fu. And please, ladies, take notes. Learn your world history. The people mentioned in this story are still on the prowl. And you never know what country they might be king of next. Now, I can't even slow down our car. I got to speed up. I am so excited, so thrilled. Our next guest, you've heard her on this show before. The multi-talented, beautiful, kind-hearted soul of Kate Ascot Evans is here to tell you why. When you drive, be sure the airbags in your car have been recently checked and your seatbelt is tightly fastened.
3: I was born three months early at a hospital in South Africa, Like a lot of premature babies, I was born without abilities that most humans have on arrival, and it meant I had almost zero coordination. No sports, no dancing, and when high school hit, no driving. If I got behind the wheel of a car, someone was going to die. Instead, I turned to books, and I became obsessed with the work of an esteemed novelist. Me was brilliant, acclaimed, and effortless, exactly the type of person I wanted to be. But to have any shot at that identity, I needed to leave my South African suburb. And so shortly after high school, I moved to Los Angeles, the driving capital of the world. I walked and I took the bus. For over five years. One day, after sending my umpteenth fan letter to the esteemed author without response, out of the blue, he called me and he offered me the opportunity of a lifetime. A book he'd written was being adapted into a big film, shooting in South Africa, in Cape Town to be specific, my hometown. He needed someone who knew the city to be his assistant. Then he asked, would I like to be that someone? And as I began to just scream, yes, he added one small caveat. Much of the job requires driving me around. You do drive, right? Of course. This was completely my dream come true and also my worst fear rolled into one. I suddenly had six weeks to learn to drive and to get my license. So I hired the only driving instructor in my price range, a mostly non-English speaking Ukrainian named Vladimir. Get, you are NASCAR winner. The first time I got into Vladimir's car, I had a panic attack and almost reversed into the neighborhood cat. Immediately, reversing became my Achilles heel. I just couldn't figure out which way to turn the wheel. So I failed the driving test two times. Once for almost reversing into a cyclist. And then, on my third attempt, four days before I had to leave for South Africa, I passed. I should have been ecstatic, but I didn't feel that way. Just because someone gave me a driver's license didn't mean I actually thought I could drive. I arrived in South Africa five days before the esteemed author. I had learned to drive on the other side of the road. On a good day, I could sort of drive straight, but I was awful at bends. Driving in South Africa was like driving in a third world country. No one followed the laws, pedestrians threw themselves in front of your car, and everyone was insanely aggressive. The night before the author's arrival, trying to reverse, I had an accident in my rental car in front of 10 policemen. On my first day of the job, I drove to the airport to pick up the esteemed author. And he looked really old and really frail. And when he spoke, he had this strained, exhausted voice. I had this moment of just wanting to abandon him at baggage claim while I boarded the next departing flight. Instead I drove him to lunch creeping down the slow lane of the highway, I kept wondering, can he tell I can't actually drive? I finally managed to stop trembling when we sat down to eat in the park. That is, until the conversation shifted from really nice getting to know you questions to him sharing over fish and chips that his best days were behind him, and he now welcomed death. I was so completely freaked out by this conversation that it took me a minute to process what happened next. The esteemed author collapsed. He caught himself on a railing and he held his chest and he was having a heart attack. And I was the only person there with him. I shook him and I said, I'm calling an ambulance. He snapped with a sudden viciousness. If you touch that phone, you're fired. Just take me home, and leave me alone, and let whatever happens happen. So I finally just nodded, and with a lot of effort, half carried him to the car. I laid him on the back seat, turned on the engine, and put the car in reverse. I pulled forward, and reversed, and forward, and then almost knocked into the car next to me. And as he lay there dying, the esteemed author with the last of his energy lifted his head and wheezed, Turn the wheel a little more to the left. No, the left, not the right. Now straighten your wheel. Good, Kate. By the time I actually got out of the parking lot, he wasn't responding to anything. He lay on the back seat of my rental car, ashen-faced, eyes closed. He looked like a scared little kid. I knew what that felt like. And I didn't care what that kid wanted anymore. I stopped talking to him like he was the esteemed anything and started screaming, Stay awake, you old bastard! Don't think you're gonna get lucky enough to die on me! Wake up, old man! I did my first ever U-turn and screamed at him. And I don't care if you fire me, but I'm the one driving and I'm taking you to the goddamn hospital! And that's exactly what I did. Five days later, when he got discharged from ICU, I picked him up and I drove him home, where I had a small accident reversing into his garage door. He didn't flinch. He didn't fire me. And when he introduced me to his wife, he said, this is Kate. She saved my life. As it turned out, I was the best driver for the job. Though I won't blame you if you don't want to carpool with me.
0: Many thanks for that, Kate. And Kate, because there are people out there I love and cherish in the L.A. area, please do alert me when you're on the road. That was produced by Mitzi Mock and Pat Bassini-Miller. Now, Kate Ascott evans in addition to being an actress and a writer, recently started something called the Imaginary Worlds Project, where artists, they interpret the imaginary worlds of children as creative work. Yep, see, I told you, she's good and kind-hearted. You're listening to Snap Judgment Behind the Wheel. We're going to keep on rolling down Snap Highway coming up later in the show. Haunted cars, picking cotton. Where are you going to go? Stay tuned. Snap Judgment will be right back.
4: I can you pump me up? I say, muchos gracias and adios. Bye-bye. Free love on the free love freeway. the love is free and the freeway's long. I've got something. Hot love on the hot love highway And i going home Cause my baby's gone She's dead She's not dead
0: back to Snap Judgment, our Behind the wheel special, and I was thinking about driving stories and wondering what we were going to do, and I was at a club just a little while ago, and I saw the almighty, the all-powerful Miss Joyce Lee. She's one of our favorite storytellers, and I said, Joyce, you've got to come and bust a story on our Snap microphone, she's like, all right, I'm going to let Joyce take it from here.
2: in a brown van with a stranger. He is a black male, standing six foot six with a southern accent, and I have a habit of calling him dad. We've met before. Actually, we've been meeting on and off all my life. This is the first time I've met him again in four years, and I'm a grown woman with a million little girl questions bubbling inside of me like, do you think you know anything about me? I wanted to question the name he chose for me, Joyce why he named me after the woman he married after he divorced my mother. Why didn't he marry her instead? But for some reason, I find myself wanting to protect his feelings. We drove from Oakland, California, after hearing about the death of my Aunt Teresa. I agreed to the road trip because I thought a funeral would complement the nature of my questions. My father has the unfortunate task of burying his sister, and I am wondering whether or not I should emotionally bury my father. This man who had my wit in full lips, this man whose singing voice reminded me of why I love Sam Cooke, this man whose temper placed my mother in emergency rooms. The engine is loud in this old brown van and the air is long and empty like a hallway where the slightest sound carries a weighty echo. I stare at my father as he nods to the 60s music on the radio and begin by asking questions I already know the answer to. Was it this hot in Louisiana when you were a boy? Was it this hot? Is it Louisiana? Hell can't dream of a hotter heat like the one I grew up picking cotton in, filling up that 12-foot sack as heavy as I could and wrestling blood-sucking bugs and flies on a hungry stomach. (laughs) Shoot. His bulky knuckles, loosely gripping the steering wheel, the fluctuations in his voice and dramatic facial expressions when he's in the meat of a story. So much like me. I bumped along to the road's rhythm in the hot van, fanning myself and scraping my belly for a positive conversation. What was your childhood like? What did you like to do the most? I asked. Shh, i like to do anything I could get away with doing. I wouldn't say I was a bad child, but you couldn't have convinced my daddy that. Seemed like the sun didn't work right if I wasn't beat before it went down. Every inch of schooling I could get, I took it, because so many of my friends and cousins wasn't allowed to go. Their parents needed them to help in the fields. But I got to go to school, and I made sure I finished. He was proud now. I could see him smiling from his insides. My school was the first in Louisiana to get integrated. The very first. And that happened when I was almost done. I could feel the energy relaxing between us. He seemed just as eager as me to have something to fill the air besides sweat and awkwardness. For Louisiana during that time, it was horrible. Worst time in my life. Round my senior year of high school, I was working in a potato field, picking and stacking potatoes. Hm. See, you got it better than I did, baby girl. How so? Well, see, you grew up in California. Never had to sweat in the field. I always wanted that for my kids. And you got a daddy who can say he loves you without a flinch or a blink. I'm hungry, I responded. It's just what came out at the time. I didn't even know if I was really hungry or not. We stopped at an old wooden place that looked like it used to be a house. You about to have the best catfish sandwich of your life, my father grins. I believe it, I smiled, because I've never had a catfish sandwich before. He looked at me like I'd slapped him. Well, you went for a treat. Normally, I get two, but you've been eating like a rabbit since we left L.A., so I know your stomach can't hold but one. Mine can hold what yours can hold. Is that a bet? I reflect his evil-eyed charm back to him and say, no, it's a promise. So we set up our catfish burger serious, and had a race. We both focused, held our burger, leaned back in our posture the same exact way. I won the competition. I asked my father if he wanted the fries. Nah, he says... If I don't eat them while they're hot, I usually don't eat them. I'm the same way, I confessed. You know, I brought you here because when I was a little boy, there was another owner. But the recipe for the catfish sandwich was the same. I remember walking past and smelling the fish frying and coming in to get one. The guy at the counter took my money and told me to go around back to get my food. I told him to give me my money back. Took everything in me not to kill him. Then he confessed. Joyce. I've had a hard life. Anything good I got and still have came from God. That includes my children. I owe you an apology. But I look at you, and it's hard for me to regret anything. You turned out just fine. I smile. Thank you. That's all I said. We went to the funeral where I met at least 100 more versions of myself. We visited for two days in Monroe, Louisiana, before my father said it was time for us to get back on the road. We talked. He told me about his aspirations of being a photographer, and I told him about my collections of scrapbooks. We came to the Louisiana cusps, and he suddenly pulled the van over to the side of a cotton field. Okay, baby girl, here's your chance. I gave him a confused look as he opened the passenger door and motioned for me to get out. Come on now, here's your chance to pick cotton. You said you couldn't imagine doing it. Well now, you ain't gotta. I think those pretty hands of yours should know what it feels like. I grab the Louis Vuitton bag my mother got me for Christmas. I put on my heels and sashay towards the cotton field. My father laughs and runs to go get his camera and he is snapping away. My index and thumb bounce against the cotton bulb. Hey! There's seeds in here, I yell. Uh, yeah, sweetie, that's why the cotton gin was invented a very long time ago. I look at the prickly stalk holding the cotton and stare at a shadeless field under a hot sun. Can I take some as a souvenir, I ask? Yeah, take a couple handfuls, but you better hurry up. This ain't my cotton. Oh, shoot. You think somebody's gonna call the cops? No, baby girl, this is the South. A white man gonna come out and hand you a 12-foot sack and yell at you to keep picking. We both laugh hysterically. I collect the cotton and get back into the van. We told enough coming-of-age and pool hall stories to write an anthology. I never asked him any of the pressing questions. I didn't need to. By the time we got back to point B, I concluded to love him. I stood straight up in a few.
4: Around trying to find me some
2: shit. Whoa, Lord help me. Poor Light trying to
3: find him
0: some shit. Now that was Joyce Lee, two time Oakland Grand Slam poetry champion, storyteller, and you know what? I've got a secret. I know she doesn't want me to tell anybody. I can't help it. She shouldn't have told me in the first place. See, Joyce Lee, it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. I understand. But Joyce Lee is working on a music album. And let me say it loud and proud. It is amazing. I can't wait for everyone to hear it. And I don't know when it's coming out. It's going to be a while. But I'm angling. I'm talking to her people and having her people talk over here. You know, we here at Snap Judgment want to be the first to play it. You hear me, Joyce? All right, snap judgment. Now, Joyce's piece was produced by our own Uber producer, Mark Ristich and Renzo Goria. Now, you've seen the movie. I know you have. For some reason, a car crashes into an old burial site and is animated with the ghost of that crazy old codger down by the Wilkins farm. The car goes nuts, running over folk, and nobody knows whatever happened to his dearly departed wife. Mark, Mark, is that a movie or am I making crap up? see, honestly, I have no idea. But what I do know is that some cars are scarier than others. And some of you, you want to just say, "Oh, it's just metal and plastic. Well, some of us just know better. Machines have souls. That much is undisputed fact. You can look it up on the Google, but the real question for today's snap judgment, scientific behind-the-wheel inquiry is... Where do cars get their souls from? Huh? Where?
5: So Aunt Janice had a very interesting reputation in our family. And that was because she may have been inherently evil. She moved out to Los Angeles early on in her life because she wanted to be a movie star. And she was quite beautiful. Things did work out for her for a while, except for her husband left her for his secretary and it crushed her. Her husband, of course, was a divorce lawyer. He took everything and she had to move back to Michigan. And she became bitter. It was just like this perfect storm of craziness at all of our family get-togethers. And she would refuse to eat anything. She would just mix vodka with Ensure on her deathbed after she got throat cancer. If she deemed that the hospice nurse was too fat She would reach over, and with what little strength her little anorexic arms had, she would slap them across the face. When my great-aunt died, she had a Dodge Shadow. The family decided that it was going to me. I could not get this weird smell out of it, it was like death and cigarettes, but I was fine with that because the car was free. I had decided that I wanted to move across the country from Michigan to Los Angeles. And that's when things started to go kind of crazy with this car. And I remember the first time it happened, I was uh, driving down Lancashire Boulevard into Hollywood. I tried to brake. I lifted my foot off the gas pedal, and I could feel the gas pedal not coming with me. Instead the gas pedal started wedging itself down, and my foot was nowhere near it. And I started pumping the brakes, but it wouldn't work. And so I was watching the speedometer go up to, like, 45. And I'm on, like, a residential street. And I started freaking out. And I was like, what is going to happen? Stop. Please stop. And, and I realized that when I said stop, it stopped. And then it started happening more. And it would happen on the highway. And it was the same thing. The steering wheel wouldn't turn. Brakes weren't working. When I verbally asked this thing to stop, it stopped. That's when I started feeling like, oh, my God. And I know this sounds crazy, but maybe Aunt Janice was in the car and did not like that I was back in Los Angeles. I took the car to a few mechanics, and they would do all of these tests, and nothing ever, ever showed up on the car. But the second that I would get the car back, I would drive it home, and it would happen again. What got really scary was I was driving, it was really close to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and um, I could feel something behind me pushing my head into the steering wheel. It wasn't like a hand, it was almost like there was this cushion of air that was just pushing me and so it was so bad that I could not move my head and I actually had to pull off to the side of the road. And even then when uh, it it allowed me to move my head up, that made me shake my head back and forth. I started talking to Aunt Janice and appealing to her and things that I thought that she would be interested in. I know that she really loved certain movies, like she loved The Omen. And so I would talk to her about like the time that Gregory Peck gets his head taken off. That was her favorite part of the movie. Almost like appeasing the gods. (laughs) When things really started to go awry, is when she would follow me into work. My boss had called us into a meeting, and she said before we could leave for the day, we had to find this one picture. It had to be in one of these 100 giant books, and we would have to thumb through all of them. While that was happening, I could feel Aunt Janice pushing my head into my boss's desk, and I was not able to fight back. So, In the middle of this meeting, my head is slowly lowering itself (laughs) and everyone's just kind of looking at me. And the only thing that I can think to say is I have a really bad migraine. And so I said, if you can help me find this picture, I swear I will think about selling the car and also I will think about moving out of L.A. My head shot up. I stood up and it felt like something was pushing my body. And so I just let go. And I went to the shelf, and I picked up this one book, and I opened it up, and there was this picture that we were looking for. I could not handle the responsibility of selling a ghost car to a stranger, and I decided that I would donate it to a charity for the blind when I got rid of the ghost car, my life improved drastically. And one of the things that happened is I immediately had a dream. And this dream was so vivid. And this dream said I was going to get a red Honda Civic HX. I didn't even know an HX existed. And I went on Craigslist and I was just like, well, I guess I'm just going to post an ad saying that I need a a red Honda Civic HX 1997. The next day. A woman called me and said, I have your exact car. I've had this Honda Civic through many states. I've just recently even driven it across the country twice again. (laughs) And now, (laughs) okay, so I moved to Portland, Oregon, not too long ago. And I'm on the way to the studio today, obviously, to tell the story about a car. And, um... As I'm thinking about this car and all the stuff, and I'm on my way to the studio, what I don't realize is that the light in front of me is turning red. I blew through the light and T-boned someone in a white truck.
4: My name is Dave Gillum. I was pretty shook.
5: And he was shaking.
4: When I finally got my wits about me.
5: The first thing he said to me was...
4: It's quite a coincidence. Six years earlier... To the day... I was driving the other direction, and somebody came to the same light.
5: Same intersection.
4: Light turned green, looked both ways, went into the intersection, and boom, I got... T-bone on the driver's side. Hit
5: in the same way.
4: Like someone running a red light that day, too. Um, both times, my vehicle had been totaled. And both times, I was driving forward. And both times, it was pretty young women that did it.
5: <laughs> okay, I have been, I would have been, <sighs> here's the thing. Aunt Janice hasn't left me still. Like, there are still moments where things happen where I realize I need to make some sort of different life decision. Like, sometimes she'll just come back. And I don't know why but there's a chance that maybe I should not be living in Portland, Oregon.
0: (laughs) Now understand, Snampers, this really happened. In driving to the studio to tell us her car story, April Wolf's car was seized by a malevolent force and crashed into a man with better ways to spend his day. Thankfully, thankfully, every person is okay. Thank you, April Wolf. Produced by Stephanie Fu. Now then, has an evil spirit attached itself to any of your household appliances? A devil toaster, the stove of Satan, anything like that? Do not suffer in fear alone. Let us know at the snap. We are trained in matters that defy explanation. But let me know in the daytime. I'm not trying to have all that scary stuff in the middle of the night. Tell us your story, snapjudgment.org. You know we've got that Facebook. Facebook and Snap go together like peanut butter and jelly. And I can't wait to Facebook up a storm and Twitter and, you know, all that stuff. So like us or friend us or whatever it is you do at your house. Snapjudgment.org. Back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. Now this, as you may or may not know, this right here, this is Behind the wheel special. Talking about trips, people driving around town, and I want to ask you a question right now. Have you ever emptied your house of everything you own and packed it to the roof of your car and headed down to Mexico for a nice family vacation? No, of course you haven't. Well, here at Snap Judgment, we live life so you don't have to Snap Judgment.
4: We decided that we would make like a six-week road trip and we decided to head through Mexico. Figured that would be kind of an adventure. We spent months actually mapping out an itinerary that we thought would be fun and exciting. We packed camping gear, all of our music, camera that my mother had given me. My girlfriend packed her jewelry and when we were packing up our car, we actually strapped a whole bunch of bags to the roof of the car. And about a half hour into our trip, The bags flew off on the highway going around 60 or 70 miles an hour, causing about an eight car pileup as the sort of opening volley of our trip, which was not necessarily a good sign. We caused a lot of mayhem and we learned our lesson and we felt like from here on in, it has to be smooth sailing. So we got in the car and then we, we hit the border of Mexico. We drove straight down the Baja Peninsula. We camped along the way. We sort of were looking for the perfect, beautiful spot. When I was neurotically planning my trip, I had bought this book that was about camping in Mexico. When I got it, it turned out it wasn't about camping in Mexico, it was about doing RV camping in Mexico. There was one spot that in the RV camping guide it said, don't go here because the road is too rough, there's no electricity, there's nothing to hook up to. And so we decided that was the place that we were going to go. It was beautiful, it was paradise. We spent like seven days there. So we decided that in order to stay on our schedule, it was time to to keep going. And so, after two weeks or so of tootling around Baja with not a not a care in the world, we headed over to mainland Mexico. We're driving along it was essentially a four lane highway. We're driving in a Toyota. Hey, babe, what was our, what was the car? A Camry? Yeah. Yeah, um, with California license plates. It's the middle of the day, speeding along, having a good old time. We both really need to pee at about the same time. So we decided to pull over the side of the road and you know, take care of our business. My girlfriend has this technique where she would open up the front door and the back door at the same time to create a little sort of enclosed space where she would squat. I got out and went around to the the fence on the side of the road. All of a sudden, I looked over and I saw a truck that was heading towards us was actually slowing down as it was approaching us, which seemed very strange to me, but it came to a stop about, I don't know, 20 feet behind our car and all of a sudden these two dudes jumped out of it both with guns in their hands. One of them kind of ran straight at me and the other one ran around the corner to where my girlfriend was. They were yelling in Spanish and it was too fast for me to understand what, what was going on. The guy, he was, uh, he was short, he was skinny and he had a very scared look in his eyes which kind of freaked me out and he had a pistol in his hand. I looked at him confused He said, Tommy Los Yaves, like, give me your keys. And I had the car keys in my hand. He cocked the gun and he pointed it straight at me. And it was the first time I'd ever had a gun pointed at me. I said, okay. And I, I gave him, I tossed the keys over to him. He grabbed the keys and it was a whole bunch of keys. And he sort of was nervously kind of shaking. He was going through them. And he came over to me and made me point out to him which was the specific key to start the car. They both jumped in the car, closed the door, turned on the ignition, and peeled off in a U-turn heading back in the other direction. The truck, which there was one guy still in the truck, they also peeled off in a U-turn. So my girlfriend and I were were left standing on the side of the road in flip-flops and shorts. We had five pesos on us. All of this vital information which we brought with us because we were moving to our new home was all in the car. No cell phone, no nothing. Both me and my girlfriend kind of stood there in silence for a few seconds just watching it drive off into the distance. My girlfriend started getting upset first. We held on to each other. We made sure that we, we, were, we were okay. It was The first feeling was sort of a sense of shock, like that couldn't have actually possibly just happened. And then she said, maybe they'll come back. Right across the road, there was one of those sort of emergency boxes with like a button you could push to call for help. So we ran across the highway, pushed the button, and nothing happened. Pushed the button again, and nothing happened. It was a broken box. So I started sticking my thumb out, trying to see if somebody would stop and pick us up, and cars just zoom by, zoom by, zoom by. And then my girlfriend took over and started waving her arms at this truck that was going by, and it immediately stopped for her. He decided to drive us to the nearest toll booth. In the toll booth, people called the cops for us. The federales show up, and they have us get in the car with them, and we drive up and down the highway, kind of seeing if we can see anything. After a while it becomes clear that they know that they're not going to find anything but they're kind of doing it to make us feel better about ourselves the car was gone and it wasn't coming back we don't have an atm card we don't have any checks we don't have any, you know we don't have anything any way to to get money we were starting to get to know the two federales a little bit what one of them decides to do is he buys an international phone card on his dime so that we can call home and try to get money we called my father he wasn't home we called my mother she wasn't home we called a few other friends. Uh, we made probably about four or five calls. We were kind of freaking out. You know, As each person did not pick up, we started to freak out a little bit like we were really gonna be stuck here. Finally, we got through to her father, who was home. So we had my girlfriend's father wire about $1,000 to this random Mexican cop in this town and hope for the best. We decided to buy the first ticket that we could to Tijuana and fly to Tijuana. We caught a taxi to the border. It was like Friday night at like 11 o'clock at night. We were walking in with all of these drunk teenagers from San Diego who had spent the night in Tijuana and were making their way back We showed up at Border Patrol. There was kind of a fat, white guy with a mustache, and he just like was stamping people through, and he looked at us with a blank stare. He like, looked at me, and he looked at her, and then he looked at me, and he said, OK, fine, go. And then we just walked across the border, and we were back in, in America. After I got a new phone, it was still with my same old phone number. So for a couple of days after I got my phone back, I would get these random phone calls from Mexico with Mexican phone numbers and I'd pick up and there would be somebody speaking in Spanish asking about the coyote. And I realized as soon as all of our stuff was stolen, it was put into the whole black market of smuggling people back across the border into America. And so me and my Girlfriend, have a joke now that there is undoubtedly a Mexican Robert Harris and a Mexican version of her who have started a whole new life in San Diego with a passport and a social security card and all the documentation you need to start your new life in America.
0: So, snappers, the next time you go bothering the good people of Mexico with your little joy riding and such, do not defile their country on the side of the road. Please, relieve yourself in the designated areas. Many thanks, though, to Rob Harris for sharing his story. It was produced by Anna Sussman. And now, do not write to me about this, because I already know what you're going to say. You don't have to go to Mexico to get stuck. Oh, I-, I know this, Snappers. I know. And we've got a story on tap from right here at home that is right. Because Snap's own Mitchie Mock has her own unique way of stopping traffic.
6: A while ago, I got a call from Tyler. Tyler's my ex-boyfriend, but he's not just any ex-boyfriend. He's the artist ex-boyfriend who traveled to London and then announced over Facebook that he just wasn't coming back. Tyler was in town for an art gallery opening, and he was calling to see if I'd like to come join him. You know, for old times' sake. Part of me wanted to tell him to go to hell, but part of me really had questions that I wanted answered. And so I said, well, I'll see if I can make it. And then I hung up, immediately got in my car, and drove to Bloomingdale's. If I was going to see Tyler, I was going to look good. I was going to look really good. And usually when I go to Bloomingdale's, I walk straight over to the sales rack, but today... Today I let myself wander over to the designer section. Beautiful dresses, silk, beading, lace, and I just wanted to touch them for a moment and imagine what it would be like to go pick one of them up. And then I tried one on, and it looked great. It looked amazing. It was perfect. Everything about it was perfect, except the price tag. It was at least two weeks' worth of paychecks, And I was about to say no, and then I remembered something my grandmother said. Mitzi, you'll never regret buying a beautiful dress. And with grandma's wisdom, I picked up the dress, and I walked straight to the cash register, threw my credit card down, and said, I'm taking this. When the day finally rolled around for the gallery exhibit, I asked my boss if I could leave work a little bit early. I wanted to beat rush hour on the Bay Bridge. She said sure, and so I took my dress and I went into the office bathroom and got all dolled up. When I walked out, all my female co-workers oohed and awed, and I was feeling great. I got into my car, I put on Beyoncé, and I headed to the Bay Bridge, and I was feeling wonderful. Beyoncé was giving me so much energy. And as I was riding along, she just kept getting louder and louder and louder. Then I realized, wait, there was a reason Beyonce was getting louder. It's because my car wasn't making any sounds. My car had died on the middle of the Bay Bridge, the bridge between Oakland and San Francisco. And I was in the middle lane with cars zooming past me on both sides. I said, Mitzi, don't panic. Just, just call for help. So I reached for my purse, and I searched around. No cell phone. Okay, don't panic. There are hundreds of people on this bridge. I am not alone. This isn't the first time this has happened to somebody. Someone's going to call. So I waited. But after an hour, I, I was in a panic. I was sweating, and I realized... Nowadays, everybody has cell phones and no one would even think that some girl sitting in a fancy dress in her car hasn't already called for help. No one is coming unless you do something. And so I did the only thing I could think of. I hiked up my dress, I swung my leg across to the other seat, and I shimmied up the sunroof. I popped out of the sunroof and I looked like this glorious gopher in headlights. All the car horns were blaring at me. And so I put my thumb and my pinky to my ear, drew a giant circle around myself, and put an X right in the middle. No cell phone. And all that led to was more honking. And I jumped back down into the car and thought, that's the stupidest thing you've ever done. I waited for another 30 minutes, and then, out of nowhere, I could see a tow truck coming. And as the cars moved forward, I knew that I was going to be okay. The tow truck driver took my car. And as we were driving back to Oakland, he pointed to the other side of the bridge. And the miles and miles of backed up traffic and said, that's all you. And he was right. And I felt stupid for everything, for the stupid dress, all of the money that I spent on it, all for a guy who dumped me over Facebook. And then we arrived at the auto shop, and I called a cab to drive me back to my office to pick up my cell phone. When I got there, the doors were locked, and everything was dark. And as I walked to my office room, I noticed a light. And as I approached my office door, my boss jumped out from the desk and said, Oh my gosh, are you okay? What? what, How how did you know? She said, It's all over Facebook, Mitzi. And she showed me the photo, and there I was in my fancy dress poking out of my car. And it said, crazy lady on the Bay Bridge, cute dress. Turns out some of my coworkers had seen me on the bridge, and they had posted the photos from their phones. My boss had figured out what had happened, and she'd called the highway patrol. She said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I never regret buying a
0: beautiful dress. Sorry you had to go through that Mitty Mock, but so glad you could tell us about it. That story was produced by Snap Judgment's own Mark Ristich and Anna Sussman. So, you like telling stories, but well, we like hearing them. This one comes from New York City cab driver Jerry Tierstein. He's telling fellow cab driver Andrew Volo about a very memorable passenger. A lady puts
4: a cat in my cab. And it was the rush hour. And then she says, Oh, I forgot my uh, portfolio. I got to go up and get it. So just drive the cat around for a block or so and come around. Well, she slammed the door and she left. Now I'm sitting here with the cat on the back seat. So I said, Okay, freak it. I'll drive around the block. What am I going to do? So as I reach the first corner, there's a light. Somebody's running over to the cab. I says, Whoa, 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 you can't get in. I got somebody. I don't see anybody in there. So he opens the door and he goes, Oh, and he jumps back and goes, Why don't you tell me you got a cat? And I, says, I said, I got somebody. You know, they ain't a human, so I don't know what to say. Then I go to the next corner. A lady's ready to jump in. She opens the door and screams and jumps back. Finally, thank God, I pull up in front of the building and the lady runs down. I said, lady, you don't know. People are jumping in the car. You're killing me here, you know? They think there's no one in here, but I got the stupid cat on the backseat. Don't call my cat stupid, you know? Okay, okay. I, I really do the job the way it should be
0: done, the old-fashioned way. Thanks so much to the amazing StoryCorps crew for catching this conversation. Now... We're about to roll into the garage, but don't you worry. Don't you frown. Hours more Snap Judgment goodness. Await your listening pleasure at snapjudgment.org. Podcasts, stories, short films. Leave your own story. Tell others exactly what you think of theirs. Now, Snap Judgment was produced by myself, but never alone. Never, ever alone. Show some love, if you would, for our chief mechanic, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Listich. Collision repair, Stephanie Fu. Detailing handled by Rita Daniels. Oil change by Anna Sussman. Will Urbina runs our car wash and Mixie Mop on parking services. Demolition provided by Renzo Gorio, Natalia Yeager, and Pat Masidi Miller. We'd like to give a big thanks to StoryCorps for our interviews in a cab, storycore.org. And now then, did you pick up somebody from the side of the road, dirty, smelly, mumbling? In the back seat, about these times, they are changing. Not to fear. That's the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Give them much love from us, and enough change for a hot meal at the next stop. Many thanks to CPB. Youth speaks. Why does youth speak so much? Because the next generation can speak for itself. Youthspeaks.org. What happens when somebody puts transmission fluid in your radiator? <laughs> well. Actually, I have no idea. That's a different public radio show. What I can tell you is that PRX keeps the public in public media, PRX.org. And even though this should never be confused for the news, this ain't even close to a news program, in fact, You could lie under your old rusty VW bug with a toolbox, discover that it has a mind of its own, watch as it gets you out of one jam after another while hijinks ensue, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.